Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Emily Dickinson is no ordinary poet. Her intelligent and profound work inspires a fierce attachment in those who love it. I know this firsthand. My wife began reading Dickinson soon after we first met and took to the poem so deeply that, a little over a decade later, she published a book about Dickinson's spiritual life. What that meant for me, in addition to admiring her writing, was that for over a decade, Dickinson was more or less a member of our household, readily quoted by my wife on almost any occasion. If your nerve deny you, she might advise me as I tried to parallel park, go above your nerve. Or, on a winter morning, she might suddenly reflect on the polar privacy of a soul admitted to itself. A number of times I had to remind her that not all of us speak Dickinson. And yet, even if I don't speak Dickinson, I too admire the poet's work, as well as the spiritual struggles she undertook. So I was delighted to come across Kristen Case's new book, Abdication, Emily Dickinson's Failures of Self, which takes up many of Dickinson's great themes. What does it mean to be a self? And how can one fail or lose oneself? How does one approach or perhaps even dissolve before God or infinity or finitude? Why do our absences, longings, and emptiness sometimes define us more than what's actually there, before us, as us? These are dense and weighty questions, and Case takes them up with a keen intelligence and deft attention to language, her own and Dickinson's. Case is, indeed, a writer who speaks Dickinson, and a writer worth hearing. Kristen Case, welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. And uh, you have a, a relatively new book. It's called Abdication, Emily Dickinson's Failures of Self. It's a fascinating book and what it does, and I, I can't wait to chat with you about it. Um, but before we get to, to the book itself, I was wondering if you'd tell us a little bit about you know, the origin of, of where this book came from and, and you know who you are as a writer and as, as an artist. You have a, quite a range, and I'd like our listeners to know about that. Sure. Um, so I, I, let's see, I started off, I guess, as a poet. Um, I did it, I did an MFA a few years after college in poetry, um, and then decided to go back for my, for my PhD. So, so I've always had this kind of, um, hybrid identity and, uh, but they've mostly, I, I, I've mostly kept my work sort of in one field or the other. Um, and lately, um, that they've been bleeding into one another. So, so this work was a, a f- kind of a first attempt to um, to bring kind of more of a, a, a poetry sensibility to the act of critical reading. Um, and uh, yeah, it feels like just the beginning of of doing that work. It was a kind of first test run. 
And it's it's not every poet who's written a history of American poetry in which to place themselves. Could you tell us a little bit about uh, you know your your take on the history of American poetry? You have this um, American pragmatism and poetic practice that starts with Emerson and goes all the way up to the experimental poet Susan Howe, um, and it seems to have an interesting vision of of what the American poetic practice is. Oh sure. Um, uh, well, I should say it's you know I. Um... I, I worry that my historicist friends will will say like what history hardly um, <laughs> um, a bit more impressionistic than that um, but uh, uh, it is interested in looking at the ways that these different kind of philosophical questions or questions about the self and questions about objects and questions about sort of p- how we perceive things get kind of um, um, bounced around in the the field of American thought uh, in a kind of widely considered way. So it's a really eclectic. It, it was my dissertation, I should just say. Um, is a really eclectic uh, take on on some of those questions and kind of holding up a, a poet and a and a philosopher. Um, the, the the word philosopher used in a way to include people like Emerson and Thoreau um, next to one another. And then, and then look at the resonances that, that kind of emerged from that. Um, and I, I make the point about history only to say, you know, I, I think it is um, it's perhaps a little bit uh, unfashionable in being, <laughs> in being not, uh, not particularly oriented in a kind of historicist way, um, or at least at the time that I, I was writing, um, I felt that, that that to be the case. Uh, but it does, I think it does um, look at, at the kind of resonances across American thinking and writing. Yeah, I, I think that, that what struck me about the approach is that you normally think of you know, American poetry is being kind of chunked up into historical periods, you know, mm. antebellum or or whatever have you. And, and you were much interested in thinking about the ways that that poets and language uh, approaches philosophical problems of perception, of objectivity. Um, and And of course, it seems very much at one with the kind of work that you're doing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I... Um... I, I guess I guess that book um, I guess that that writing that book helped me figure out what it was that I wanted my writing to do, which was to um, to kind of uh, not to try to solve problems, but to um, <laughs> I, I, I want to say something like make them worse, no. yes. <laughs> Make them uh, inhabit them uh, to inhabit problems and to uh, to to kind of be be in in, in problems. Um, Donna Haraway's new book is called something like "Staying with the Difficulty," which I think is uh, just a great a great idea, an idea I really admire. Um, that there's something about the um, the discipline of kind of letting yourself get pulled into a problem that you know you're not going to solve. Which, which is a wonderful kind of counter gesture, I think, to an impulse you see in American discourse, public discourse, which is to shut it down and to make it less complex than it actually is. It seems like you're you're describing something much more like Keats's negative capability. It, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And and I think um, that, that, thank you, that's it. <laughs> and uh, I think, um, you know, there's a, 
there, I always feel a certain kind of resistance to, um, to kind of, uh, creating a, something that is, is, um, easily sort of, um, digested and bought and sold and marketed, um, that, that writing should kind of, uh, work against those work against that, that, that desire to have something like neat and compact and, um, salable, you know? Yes. I, th I think if, um, if you were thinking about virtues, right, that, that we don't normally think of things like difficulty and complexity and challenge and fragmentation and confusion as being, well, these, these are things we're searching after, but they, yeah. they often mark the most important things in our life and our thinking. And so to invite those into, into our work, it suddenly makes that work feel, feel much more consequential, um, even if it mirrors the struggles that we're going through. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, I think that there's a, um, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't, I don't, I try to not sort of fetishize difficulty for the sake of difficulty. I think there's a lot to be said. Also, I'm really indebted to a lot of writers who, um, really value clarity and, um, plain spokenness. And that, that's also a, um, a tradition that I really, um, that I really value. Uh, and so my own kind of like ethical, weird ethical litmus test for that stuff is sort of, um, you know, there are things that you can say clearly and then, and then things that you can't say clearly <laughs> and, uh, to never try to never, to never be clear at the expense of the idea. And on the other hand, to never manufacture difficulty for the sake of manufacturing difficulty, right? Like there, so there are, ideas that are, um, that you, you can just say, uh, and, and, and ways that you can just talk directly to a reader in a very, um, a very kind of friendly and accessible and immediate way. And then there are moments when you're really trying to get at something that you don't, you don't have a, a clear picture of. And, and I like the ability of writing to, 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 to stretch from, from both of those places. And I think your book even pushes that, that, that latter, um, potential. I mean, it, it's, it's a book that wants to come up against the limits of what language can do. Mm. Um, and so there's, there's an even, you know, there's what can be said clearly and directly and straightforwardly, you know, we love Thoreau there, there's <laughs> what needs to be complex for it to be articulated at all. And then there's kind of, where do you hit the, the outer limit of what language can articulate where experience goes beyond it? Um, so I'd love it if you'd tell us a little bit about, you know, what's, what's the project of, of this book? Uh, sure. Well, so I guess that the first thing I would say is that the, the project was just to figure out a way to write about Dickinson. Um, I've loved Dickinson for a long time, but she always felt kind of too sacred, um, to, to write about. And, uh, and too wrenching really to write about. Like there was, um, there's, it's too, it's like holding something like right out of the oven. It's sort of not, not, um, uh, not easy to handle, uh, in a, in a kind of critical way. And, and so I just thought I, I, I can never do it. I can never, Dickinson is not someone I can write about. Uh, and then I thought, well, what if that, what if that's what the book is about, right? What if, what if it's about the ways that reading really can uh, sort of 
undo the reader? Um, what, what if it's really about the, the, the ways in which um, Dickinson gets at these, these questions that feel um, uh, so uh, th- threatening to, to the, even the idea of, of, of having a self. Um, and so I, I just thought there's no, there's no critical and distanced and impersonal way to write about that. <laughs> you can't, you know, uh, honestly, you, you, you can only do it by doing it, right? You can only do it by kind of um, making yourself go through that, um, that experience. And, th- and so then Simone Weil became a, an important other voice in, in that um, the book, as well as someone who has thought a lot about um, uh, uh, her, her concept is decreation, a kind of um, undoing of the self, and which for her is a, a religious um, or, or, or sort of mystical movement. Um, and so I, you know, I was really interested in the way that really even reading Dickinson carefully and closely is, uh, is, is an experience of um, letting the boundaries of the, the self erode a little bit and letting something kind of dangerous happen to yourself. Uh, and so, yeah, so the book is a kind of walking through of that, that experience. That's fascinating. I wonder if, if we could circle back a little bit before we move into the book and you could tell me a little bit more about, about how Dickinson presents this, this challenge. The metaphor of having something right out of the oven is, is wonderful. <laughs> um, you know, I, I'm imagining a listener that, that might think, well, Thomas Wentworth Dickinson wrote about her right after he met her, right? That, that <laughs> there's an entire Dickinson industry of, yeah, of people writing books about Dickinson and, and they don't seem to have a problem. So, yeah, so, yeah, so what totally. is just be me. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Or, or what is it, what is it that you find in her work that, that doesn't allow for this kind of critical objectivity or, or traditional mode of criticism? How, how is that inadequate? Um, so I guess part of it is just that it's so hard, right? So, so there's, uh, the poems are, um, especially the poems I'm most interested in are really, uh, they just are so defiant. They, um, they break down, you know, I'm thinking of a poem like my life had stood a loaded gun, um, where she, it, she just drops the metaphor Im- immediately after, after beginning it. And so you're left to sort of try to make sense of what she's doing with this gun and the relationship to the master. And it kind of turns and, turns again on itself. And so, so some of it is just the kind of um, sheer strangeness, a committed strangeness and uh, difficulty of the, the poems. And then, and then some of it is just that she is really fearless in writing about the um, experience of being kind of, uh, and, and this isn't, of course, all she writes about. She, she writes about lots of things, but one of the, the, the key, um, the key, points of interest for me is the way her, her fearlessness in writing about a a kind of stripping down of, of the self or a kind of bareness, um, sometimes before God, uh, sometimes just before experience, um, that is, she really, uh, she is not afraid to record that experience, um, and to record it in all of its strangeness and, um, uh, uh, and, and she never, she also never 
drops her intelligence so that the strangeness is is full of the feeling of the experience and um and full of the 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 particularity of the experience so beautifully described um but she also like another thing i really like about her is that she she often doesn't give us a narrative to accompany that description so it's just the feeling um without a lot of you know context. Um, and that, that, that strikes me as part of what makes her so interesting as a writer too. I, I wonder if you'd be willing to read one of the poems that you take up in, in your book. Um, you know, one of the things listeners might want to know is that the book is, is punctuated at various key moments by some of Emily Dickinson's own poems that then you respond to and develop and refract and as part of your project. Yeah, absolutely. Let me um let me just pull pull the book up here. Um Yeah, you pick some good ones. <laughs> so yeah, this this first one uh in the the um the new the new numbering um which is um oh, I'm I'm drawing a total blank on who the, the new numberer is. Um, oh, so Franklin re edits the collected works of Dickinson and gives him the new numbers is that the yes yeah Franklin. so the there was the thomas uh, wentworth no who was the is it right it's i always get them confused because it's a it's an, another name that kind of is like franklin yeah <laughs> but anyway so for the for the curious listener emily dickinson's poems finally go out come out in the middle of the 20th century in a huge edition that blows everybody's mind and then it gets redone it was like the early 90s Yes, yeah. By going back to the fascicles and recounting them. And so we, we refer to them by number and the numbers got rearranged. And, you know, this throws scholars like us off, but it doesn't change the power of the art. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Yes, thank you for summarizing that. Sure. Yes. Um, yeah, so if you look these poems up, there, you usually see two numbers. Um, and so the numbers that I'm using are the, the more recent Franklin numbers. Um, so, so this is, this is 39, um, and it's the, the first poem that I talk about and one that remains for me, uh, totally mysterious and wonderful. I never lost as much, but twice, and that was in the sod. Twice have I stood a beggar before the door of God. Angels twice descending reimbursed my store. Burglar banker, father, I am poor once more. So take us into that because you're right that the, the kind of intellectual density and density of feeling, um, I'm imagining somebody hearing that for the first time and being like, what did I just hear? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, there's so much going on. It's a tiny little eight line poem. Um, but it's so compact. Uh, I mean, one thing, so it's this figure, of a person begging before the, the door of God. Um, but we don't really know what for. We have this clue. I never lost as much, but twice. And that was in the sod. So that seems to be about losing people to death, possibly. Um, and, and, and the store being reimbursed tw twice two on two prior occasions. So it kind of sounds like the speaker is at the threshold of a third a third occasion um, and right in the moment of, of asking, I am poor once more. Um, but then there's so many mysteries, right? So the line burglar, banker, father uh, is punctuated with 
burglar, and then an exclamation point, and then banker dash father, uh, which sort of makes it seem like, you know, uh, w- w- what's going on with that dash? Is the is the banker like part banker, part father? Uh, or, or is it a kind of rhetorical movement? Like she starts to say banker, but then corrects to say father as one would in prayer. Um, is burglar an accusation? Um, is this a, is this some kind of weird trinity? Uh, you know, there's so many possibilities and there's all this kind of strange math going on in the poem. So it begins with, I never lost as much, but twice, which is kind of a weird, you know, you, you, you want that word to say once, right? I never lost as much, but once. And then uh, we have another twice, twice have I stood a beggar before the door of God, angels twice descending. So all these, this, this uh, repetition of, of the word twice, two stanzas. Um, and then, you know, one of the things that I find really sort of mystical about the poem is that the, the, the space between the stanzas um, really operates as a threshold, right? You just, it feels like uh, she is in the, in the act of crossing this, this threshold. Um, likewise, the space at the end of the poem, the, the space of the page, which just sort of feels like, well, is there going to be an answer or not? Um, and uh, I just marvel at the way that she uh, creates that, that sense, enacts that, that sense. I, I think that, that what I hope the listeners are getting is that this, in this book you are going to find an author who loves poems, who believes in them. Um, and and part of the pleasure of the book, I think, is, is being able to enter so deeply into the poems that you choose from Dickinson and open up and expand. Um, and I think that's, that's, that's another way to, to help bring listeners into the book, which is that I get the deep feeling that that poems for you are not simply, you know, verbal ditties on a page, right, or something like that. Um, they're, they're containers of experience and thought and self. There's a real belief that, that these constructions of language can be vehicles and vessels as well as vessels that can be broken. Hmm. Oh, that's beautifully said. Um, I, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's true. And I think, um, uh, you know, what's, what's interesting is that I spent, I, as a graduate student and as a scholar, you know, you spend so much time learning um, about different ways of reading poems and you kind of develop this I, I, I want to use the word arsenal because that's the kind of like, like it's like weaponized language that comes to mind when you when you think about uh, uh, literary criticism. Um, but uh, and that is so much the tone of so much literary criticism, right? It is a kind of um, it's deployed, and so there's this, there's a kind of coldness and even maybe a kind of violence about um, about. Uh, the way the ways in which literary criticism engages literature, um, I could go on and on about that. But I, 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 I probably, oh, I probably shouldn't. <laughs> I, I have there are moments where my my students talk about in, graduate students interrogating the poem, and I think, where do you find that verb? Like, where else yeah. does that verb go? That's that's not what an encounter should be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or like, can you weaponize your critique? Yeah. <laughs> 
weaponized. Like, no, I can't. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. So, so I, I do, I, I mean, I, I guess the thing that I, I think is that you can use all of those tools and you can, um, you can take all of the kind of, um, the, the care that is, um, built into the, the processes of reading that you learn, um, in graduate school and in, in, in learning to, 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 to sort of study literary criticism and use it, um, in a way that is, um, uh, that is not, uh, uh, thinking of it as a kind of weapon or thinking of the text as something that you are, um, interrogating, but rather as something that you are entering into as in a kind of, uh, as in a kind of relationship. Yeah. I, I think it might be, uh, surprising for, People, fo- folks out there to know that this book actually opens up with you in bed, lying in bed in October. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it was this sort of, um, uh, I think it was actually, I think I was actually on my couch. Oh, was it the couch? Okay. <laughs> but, but just woke, just, you know, in that still, you know, very sleepy um, state of like, pulling myself out of bed, opening up the computer and just writing, um, and trying to write while everything was still a little bit fuzzy, um, that trying to think of that as an asset rather than a, a liability. Um, uh, because that seems, I don't know, everything's a little bit looser in that, in that hour, you're a little bit closer to the kind of strange dissolution of being asleep. And, um, and that seemed the right time to, that seemed a way to get things into the writing that I, my conscious and fully awake self would be shy about letting into the writing. Um, and so, yeah, so it was a, that was a kind of deliberate, I mean, it was also the only time I had to write. So <laughs> it did double duty in that way. Well, I think one of the, the other things that it does is it, it invites a sense of embodiment into the mm. the book, which is something that you return to throughout that. What's the relationship between the body and the self? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something that I, you know, I, I think Dickinson is so, so good on as well. I mean, there's just a really interesting, um, there's just a really interesting way in which she, navigates her own world and uh, gives us uh, just enough of the kind of physical details of that world to have a feeling for it, um, but also withholds so much, right? Her, it's so, um, there's so much we don't know about Dickinson. Um, and uh, that I think is a lot of what the poems are able to, to convey is in that, that, that absence. So, so, you know, it's not many books that you get pushed so quickly and so fully into what I might describe as something like, you know, a vision, an ontology, um, a sense of what it means to be. And, you know, if you think about the the tradition of the essay, as it starts with Montaigne, in mm-hmm. his introduction, he says very straightforwardly, I myself am the subject of my book. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if, if I could, I would have showed myself fully naked. There doesn't <laughs> seem to be much of a problem of, of what yeah. he thinks he can access. So, so it, it might be helpful to hear a little bit about, you know, within your book, what is a self? What is its nature? Mm-hmm. What is it capable of or not capable of? How, how does it work? 
Oh man, that's such a, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think the, the, the writing is always for me, a uh, kind of tentative exploration of those, of those questions and, and ways of, um, inhabiting different possible answers. So I guess I would say in this, in this book, uh, I was really interested in the experience of, of really being like those moments where you feel a loss of self, um, for whatever reason. So, uh, because someone has left you or because you have lost something or as in the, the example that I, I talk about in the book is, uh, losing a, um, a pregnancy. Um, and, uh, just that, the, the intensity of that kind of loss, uh, and, Think using Dickinson's poems as a way to to really think about that kind of loss that is really threatening to the self, um, and what those moments reveal about uh, about selfhood, um, which is I think quite beautiful actually. And so uh, that that ended up being the kind of redemptive part of the project for me is that that in those moments of total self effacement or loss of self or uh, per- perilousness, um, danger to the self, uh, something does come in, right? Whether it's uh, openness to, to, to something outside the self, to some other, uh, to some other experience, there's a kind of opening that happens in those moments of, uh, of intense grief. Um, and I'm not sure, I'm not sure I can say more about it than that, uh, except that um, for me, that was a very, uh, that was an important kind of redemptive part of of looking at these, these really uh, kind of soul bearing uh, moments of loss. Yeah, I guess the the question I want to ask, I don't know if it's loaded, it's it's totally loaded. Uh, (laughs) Is that something else God? Yeah, I mean, certainly it was for Dickinson, I think. Um, and uh, I don't, I think that, I don't know, I, 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 I'm, I'm agnostic. Um, I think that I experienced that something else in, um, in, in different ways. Uh, but it is oh, in ways that really def- do defy language, and maybe that's the place in the, in the text where I can't I can't articulate what's there, what's on what's on the other side of the the open opened up boundaries of the self. It's just not the self, um, and there's some, uh, but there's something right. There's a world, <laughs> and that's. Uh, it, in that way, it is an encounter. It's an encounter with the world again um, to kind of have that boundary um, eroded and to, to kind of feel whatever force that is come sort of rushing in. That Yes, you know, you shouldn't be pinned down to being like, so you found God, right? <laughs> that, that, that seems a little unfair. Oh, come and talk about my book. Um, but there is, um, you know, you, you talk a little bit about... Um, sort of the the experience of that dissolution, the experience of inhabiting negativity, uh, failure, at one point you call it um, kenosis, the, mm. the theological idea comes in. Um, it seems that 
as a poet, the place you come down, which is also the place that you find Dickinson's so much of, of sort of her thinking about this and feeling about this is, is language. And, and the book mm-hmm. ends on a gesture toward grammar mm-hmm. um, as, as a mode for, I, I don't think it's just describing this. It's enacting this. Mm. Mm. Yeah. 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 Well, that's right. I mean, I think that, so. What's so, gra- what's grammar for you? That might be another way to say it. Within the <laughs> within the world of this book, grammar is not just simply that which puts sentences together, right? Yeah. I, I, well, this. I guess I would say that I I I had this sort of. Um, this what what shall I call it? I, it wasn't everything is taking on like Dickinson like uh, um, uh, vocabulary here for me. So it was, but it it wasn't exactly a a a, a, revel, a revelatory moment. But it was really it was a it was a moment in which I was really changed. Um, <clears throat> and that that moment was about realizing thinking about what happens when a person speaks to another person <laughs> or reads a sentence that someone else has written and, and understands it, which is just a miracle. I mean, it really is a miracle that human brains can do this, right? That we can kind of put our thoughts into w- words that we can then make those words uh, into marks uh, that another person can look at those marks and reconstruct the 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 order of the ideas is really um, um an absolute miracle and uh we don't you know i've been i've been sort of reading this science stuff about neuroscience of reading um which is completely fascinating and you know the one of the things that's interesting about reading is that we're not we're not born doing it it's not like speaking right reading is really this elaborately constructed thing that we have built um and that we have to re you know every generation has to has to has to relearn how to do it um and it it really does strike me as a kind of uh it's so commonplace that we that we just take it for granted but that is a miracle to me that I can say all of this stuff in this weird little book and and you can read it and and think about those, some version of those same things. It's not, it's never perfect, right? It's not, uh, it's not a picture of my mind. Um, but there is some traffic between us, right? Because of these little marks on a, on a paper. Um, and I, I do, I do feel a little bit, uh, I guess one would say, religious uh toward that phenomenon of language yeah yeah it, it's miraculous it's um and i think it's all the the more so i mean there, there's a kind of it, it's no less miraculous but it's more familiar it's it's the communicative idea of reading that you know you open the newspaper and you read about some event or you open let's say the the traditional essay which describes some sort of experience or something it's relaying information experience um mm. then then i think there's there's the kind of thing that poems can do and, and it's the the experience that i had of reading the book and i'd like to try to articulate it or or maybe you can help me articulate it which is that it's it's not merely a meditation in which you the author have had these thoughts that you are then sharing with me the reader so that, that I can, you know, 
turn them over for myself. Um, it's, it's very much trying to do an enacting, I think, mm. um, trying to, to make the, me, the reader wrestle with the questions, wrestle with the moments where some of the fragments end and, and there's white space, you know, the book, it, it looks different than you might imagine a, you know, a traditional book would look because you're letting things hang in the white space and you're, you're calling attention to what's not said both in Dickinson and in your own work. Um, it ends on a question, not mm -hmm. an answer. Um, so it seems to me that, that what it means to read with in the confines of, of this book and Dickinson's poems that you're using, it, it's a different kind of experience. Yeah, that's really, um, that's really nicely said. And you've isolated, you know, the thing, probably the thing that I'm most consistently interested in, in all the, the writers that I read and why I love poetry so much is that, um, I'm most interested not so much in what things say, but what they, what they, what they do to me as a, as a reader, <laughs> I'm interested in like, when Emerson makes my head suddenly feel like I'm in a like crazy fog. Um, and he, there's always a reason there's always, he's always kind of evoking that mental space, um, or creating that mental space, uh, towards some end. Um, and it's fascinating to kind of see the way that he, the, the, the mechanisms through which he does that. Um, and likewise Dickinson, I mean, I think, you know, she, in thinking about, for example, um, this phenomenon I'm talking about, about sort of bereavement, she, you know, she makes us bereft. She, 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 she takes things from us uh, as readers um, and denies us things. And that is uh, really powerful as a way of evoking that, that, th those ideas. And, and so I am quite interested in language that, that performs itself in that way. And um, it seems the only, the only way to try to be in, conversation uh with work like that is to is to is to hope to to do something something similar or something you know imitative at least <laughs> yeah there's some moment in her letters where she says it's something like we ask god to answer and he answers no yeah <laughs> we ask him to the, rescind the no and he don't answer at all <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah exactly Right. Yeah. And, uh, she, she's certainly a poet who's not going to do your work for you. She's yeah. uh, she's there to give you an encounter. Well, my goodness, after after a, a wrestling like this with a, a poet of her stature, where where are you going now in your work? I know um, you're, you're off in Belgium. I am. Yeah. yeah. I'm at a beautiful uh, residency here in Belgium. Actually, it's called Dickinson House. So that's uh, that's a. Uh, I don't know what, um, that's some kind of, some kind of fate, I guess. Um, but I'm, uh, I'm working on a critical book, um, that is, uh, trying to, I guess, justify doing more of this kind of work. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm trying to look at the ways in which literary criticism is, um, traditionally practiced and particularly the way that the kinds of affect, um, that we bring to literary criticism and, and why, and then to ask to try, to try out some different moods. Um, so, uh, so that's, that's the, the project that is probably most connected to this one, um, sort of weird literary criticism, I guess I would say. And then, uh, also writing some, uh, uh, some poems, finishing up a, a book of a second book of poems. So, so what, are, what are the, 
potentials for literary criticism if you if you change its affect? I mean, I think it's anything, anything. It could be anything, <laughs> which is so. Uh, that's the question of um, you know why we why we do it in such a narrow way. Typically, um, when it could, of course, uh, we have the whole rich, long tradition, as you say, of the essay um, giving us models for ways to engage subjects and uh, in different forms. Um, but I, I think, in particular. The thing I'm interested in is um, if you get close to a text, which doesn't have to mean loving the text, right? I think it, you can also fight with a text um, by getting close to it. Like um, I have a like really vexed relationship to Shakespeare's sonnets, which I totally do love, but also um, get angry at. And I think, you know, there are all kinds of ways in which it's important for us to too. Uh, but, but I think allowing that relationship um, between reader and text to come into the critical work uh, is, I think there's a lot of interesting potential there. So that's what I'm trying to explore. Uh, I, I think that Dickinson is a very interesting case in the, the history of literary criticism, which is, you know, you have the, the early printings of her book that her family was involved in, where they've been changed and um, and then there's that Johnson edition in like 55 or something, but it's not really till Adrian Rich writes Vesuvius at home yeah. that we suddenly see her powers and there's a, a kind of wake up call. And then there's, and, and, and she starts to become written about in sort of mainstream academic literary criticism. And then Susan Howe comes along in my mm -hmm. Emily Dickinson and calls us back to the way that Dickinson was working on the page. And that becomes a kind of new revolution, revolution that scholars then work out of. And I, I wonder if in writing this, you saw yourself as, as working in that alternative tradition of, of Rich and Howe, especially since I know you've written on her in other contexts. Yeah, I, I mean, really, the whole the 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 footnote to the footnote to Susan Howe is like too big to you know it <laughs> to even include. It's a, it's all it's all under the sign of Susan Howe. Um, she she's a, a huge for me um, enabler of the the work that I do, and um, uh, someone who on whose work my work completely depends. Um, so yes, I mean, I think. They, those both of those both rich and how but particularly how um have opened up for me um uh the 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 power of of dickinson's work and 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 other work as well uh but in particular i mean one of the wonderful things about susan howe's take on dickinson is it really makes it strange i mean she really she's interested in the strangeness of dickinson and her uncapturability and i'm i'm interested in that too so, so let me ask you one final question. What is the, the virtue of strangeness in art? Hmm. Give, give us something familiar that we want, <laughs> right? Why, <laughs> why strangeness, right? What, what is that as an artistic quality? What is its virtue? Well, I guess the, I mean, the line about sort of the, the 
Russian formalist, uh, is it Shlovsky? Is that who talks about defamiliarization? That, yes, um, yep, sure. Who says that, right, we, we sort of can't see things after a while if they're, if they're too familiar. And uh, this is a total bastardization, I'm sure. My apology to Shlovsky scholars out there listening. Um, but, uh, that, 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 you know, when we see things too much, when they're too familiar, we, we kind of can't. Um, we can't really see them anymore. Um, and so the, the strangeness uh, allows us access to um, something ordinary um, by just turning it, by, by, by reintroducing us to the strangeness that it, in fact, um, possesses. And I guess I would say that I, I, I basically, um, I do believe that. And I, and I also believe that... Um, I think there are parts of our lives always, no matter, no matter who you are, there are parts of our lives that are under our control and feel comfortable and familiar and okay. And that we can talk about pretty easily. And then there's this sort of outer, outer fringe or outer edge of experience that we have not domesticated yet. And we can have not made sense of yet. And it's, um, it's the things that we don't understand or the things that we can't quite bring ourselves to look at or, or think about, Um, and I think, uh, venturing into those spaces, um, is good. I think it's good for us (laughs) in the end. There's a kind of, uh, I don't know. It's a kind of spiritual practice, I guess I would say, um, to go to those places and to try to track those trips in writing. Um, I think that it, it, it makes us a little bit more open, um, both to experience and, and maybe even to one another, uh, to, to venture into the fringes of our own experience. And, and in those places, um, writing just gets difficult, I think. I think I'm going to post this interview as a essay called On Strangeness. That's a beautiful, <laughs> beautiful articulation of it. Kristen Case, thank you so much for your time and for being on the New Books Network. Thank you. This was really fun, Eric. My name is Eric LeMay, and you've been listening to an interview with Kristen Case, author of Abdication, Emily Dickinson's Failures of Self, on the New Books Network.